call is now being recorded. All right, everybody. Uh, this is Brandon with Spaghetti and Meeples. Uh, we are joined by Jim Pinto today, who we've spoken with in the past and briefly made a sort of non-appearance in our recent GameStorm video and had to uh, protect his identity. He's wanted in a lot of places. I am. I so, am Jim, a... thank <laughs> Jim, thank you so much for joining us again. How's it going today? Good, good. Uh, so uh, I know you are always busy. You've always been busy. And you're still wrapping up three or four Kickstarters? I can't keep track at this point. Uh, uh, I'm getting the shipping out today on uh, a card deck one that I did. And then Carcass is in development with a writer friend of mine. He's finishing it up now. So that'll be done in the next month or so. And then I've got more stuff that I'm going to be kickstarting soon. But otherwise, once Carcass is off my plate, I'm, I'm caught up. Oh, nice. Okay. But uh, not not to have nothing to do, you've decided to start something else real soon, right? Yeah, yeah. Wednesday, so, in fact, uh, I'm launching another game. Okay. Uh, for those of you listening right now, it is Monday the 16th of October, 2017. So this will be... The 18th of October? Yes. All right. And can you tell us what that's for? Yeah, I did, um, last year I did a game called Praxis, and there were five games in the series, and one of them was called Black Monk, and it's my favorite in the series. It's not the best selling, but it is my favorite, and I just started writing more and more for it and creating more of the world, um, which is eventually going to turn into a full bore role-playing game but probably not for another year or two. I wrote four more Praxis games set in the Black Monk world, but with completely different character classes in completely different parts of the world, so they're going through very different situations with the Black Monk. So each game plays very different. The stories are very different. Nice. So I have um, King of Storms. I have. I do not have Black Monk, or I think I might have it as a PDF, and I haven't printed it up yet. For those unfamiliar, can you talk a little bit about what Praxis is, what Black Monk is, and then why Black Monk's your favorite. So Praxis is, uh, without sounding arrogant, it is the best game mechanic I've ever come up with. Um, it is my favorite GMless game. Uh, it is, it's sort of a, a branch between, not a branch, it's a bridge between Apocalypse World and Protocol, somewhere in there, in that mix. So you're still telling a story together collectively at the table, but you're more focused on telling your part or your version of the story, if that makes sense. Sort of, um, what's that? It's not Rashomon, the other one. What's the other Kurosawa movie with the three tellings of the same story? I'm no, isn't that Rashomon? Like, is that Rashomon? But yeah, so everybody has, yeah, so everybody has their own perspective. And so it's the same event, but everybody tells it differently. Right. So practice isn't that yeah. exactly, but you are telling your perspective. You are trying to tell your finale. So you're all in the same story together, but you want to tell the finale because there's only going to be one finale to the story. And uh, there's also, there's optional rules for a plot twist. There's optional rules for an epilogue. But the the focus on the game is everybody's telling their stories. You're all in this situation together, but you want to tell your finale. So it's not inspired by Rashomon, but Rashomon is such a, a great film. It's a good example of the kind of things that influence me. So with the Praxis system, there's all these different games where people are in the same situation, but they have their own agendas. And Black Monk is the one that's set in a weird Neil Gaiman-esque fantasy world, 
where time is lost meaning and people are just toiling in work waiting for the black monk to arrive. And it's really hard to explain it any deeper than that because every character has their own sort of battle with immortality going on. I can't really tell you what specifically the game is because everybody has their own take. Does that make sense? Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and you give us sort of the, the setting of it. And then you're inspired. Do you have four more parts you're doing? Yeah, I'm doing four more parts of the Black Monk Saga. So each one comes with uh, six more characters set in a different village or town or place inside the Black Monk world, which is called Solstice, but that doesn't – that's not clear in the Praxis games. That's the name of the world. But it will be clear once the whole thing is done, the whole – series of games, because I want to continue to do games in this world, and they don't have to all be practice games, they just, I want to do games set in this environment, because the world is so different from what fantasy worlds usually bring, and I know everybody always says, oh, this game is different, blah, 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 because, you know, now dwarves have three eyes instead of two, and people think that's different. I'm actually going for a different approach to fantasy gaming here that people usually don't take. It's not it's not a new way to adventure. It's not even an adventure game. It's a it's a battle with yourself and with the environment around you rather than killing monsters. Well, one of the things I've loved about all of your games that I've looked at is that you're going towards this cooperative, isn't the term, but, you know, sort of this GM-less experience. Even if there is a GM, it's not we're all checking our stats constantly. Oh, I didn't add my modifier. Oh, I get to roll three more times. Oh, what about your modifier? Right. And and really focus on having an experience. I think that's that's the best way I'm trying to say it, is that you're, you seem really focused on creating a collective experience uh, in, instead um, of a let's beat stuff up. Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, I don't have a problem with games where you're beating stuff up. I have a problem with the entire notion that only one person's imagination at the table is any good. And I think Dungeons & Dragons and all these derivative games and I'm sorry, 99% of the games are Dungeons and Dragons just with different mechanics. If you're rolling a die and only one person at the table gets to interpret that die, then you're playing Dungeons and Dragons. That is essentially what Dungeons and Dragons is. And I have this conversation a lot with people. This is such a tough paradigm to get people out of. But everybody at the table has an imagination. You can't have a qualitative imagination. You can have a quantitative imagination, right? You could, well, I'm out of ideas. I only have ten good ideas, and I've used them all. But you can't have a qualitative imagination. That's just impossible. So telling everybody at the table that you're, that you're additive, what's the word I'm looking for? What you want to add to the game isn't as good as the guy sitting behind the screen or the girl sitting behind the screen. That's stupid. There's no other better word. There's no better word for it than... It's stupid to imagine only one person can add something in. And GMless games and games that break that paradigm, car- Carcass, the person to your left is interpreting your die rolls, right? So it's different for everybody who's interpreting the die rolls. And in a GMless game, you're rolling dice and, or you're not rolling dice at all, and everybody's coming together and, and mixing it up with that story. And I, I'm making something called Salt right now, which actually has a GM, but everybody has agency. The players themselves have the power to impact the story um, in a way that these kind of games typically haven't. And it's a Western, so it's a genre people are familiar with, but they're going to have an opportunity to play it in a very different way than they're used to playing, say, Shadowrun or Desperado or whatever game you're talking about that does those things. And for our, our listeners at home, um, Jim is a 
huge fan of Shadowrun. It's probably his favorite game in the world. <laughs> oh my god! It is it is the example I use all the time of a ba- of a, a perfect example of a bad game because it doesn't yeah. do anything right. It doesn't do any of the things that it's supposed to do right. And so I can always use it as an example of what not to do when making a game. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's interesting because when I first heard about it, I, and actually I think the first time I ran into Shadowrun, I, there was a Sega Genesis cartridge game for it, which was kind of fun. But then looking into the RPG, I was like, oh, this sounds like it could be a really cool world. And I was like, why is this guy an orc? Why is this guy an orc who can hack my phone? I don't understand. Why is there this magical elf who sometimes uses magic and sometimes shoots me in my face? There is the one thing that Shadowrun did get right. It took all the tropes of Dungeons and Dragons and just put a science fiction veneer on it. So people looking to get out of Dungeons and Dragons had a game they could immediately attach to, even though it's not really a game, it's just a product, right? They just continue to sell you more replacements for your own imagination. So I wouldn't even call it a game, but that's the one thing they got right, is that you don't need to know why the orc is there. Just that, oh, you know what an orc is. I don't have to invent a new alien race because you know what an orc is. But it, it feels like there's... it's all veneer, it's all superficial. Yeah. Yep. So with the Kickstarter launching on Wednesday, uh, what can people expect, and do you have an idea as far as what your tiers are going to be? Yeah, yeah, the page is built. i got to finish the video, but everything's up. It's ready to go. I just got to hit launch on Wednesday. So the stretch goals are going to be more free characters for each book. Um, You don't have to buy all five books. You can just buy the one you want. The original will also be available if you missed the original on the first Kickstarter. So it's all ready to go. It's, I'm, I'm keeping it simple because all I'm really looking to do is recoup the cost for all the art and give people more and more characters if that they want them. Now, if it does really, really well, I'll make a sixth game. No, and that's something I've noticed that you tend to do is if it's going well, you, you will always give more content, even if you weren't originally planning to. I love doing that, right? I want to make as many games as possible. So I have no problem writing more people, you know, fund fund my games really well. I think that's the one reward I can hand back without being crippled by it. I watch all these Kickstarters where now we're going to do mugs, now we're going to do minis, now we're, and those costs are exponentially large. Yeah. You know, adding just one miniature, if I said I'm going to have a stretch goal of a miniature, well, just getting the miniature sculpted is $500, and then getting eight in China is a minimum of $3,000 because I have to print X number of them just to get a cost break. So why would I why would I do something like that to myself when I can generate more content, give you free characters and free PDFs for the rest of your life if, the, if it did well enough? I don't want to put myself out of business, but I do want to give you something for being so supportive. Well, and the first one that I – how I discovered you was the dollar RPG. I got – so much free stuff. Like, first off, yeah. I just love the way you set that up. The, like, it's a dollar RPG. We have no idea what it's going to be yet. We'll get there. Mm-hmm. We'll figure it out. But even, like, what was it, the week after, I got five or six PDFs and free music, I think. Before the product was even done, just a week after the Kickstarter closed, I had, I, you would know the cost, but I, it seemed like I had $30, $50 worth of free PDFs. So, But, yeah, for your dollar, you got at least... Thirty dollars in PDFs, and then with the last, the, the practice, the King of Storms one that I saw, that I have the hard hard copy but soft back. 
uh, version of. That was another one that I remember. Tons of free stuff, or it's game content related to that Kickstarter, but mm-hmm. it's extra. Um, yeah. And so that's one of the things I really appreciate about when I'm talking about this collective experience you seem to want to have. It's not just in the gaming. It's in the creation of the game, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's something meta there going on, absolutely. I, I'm a little mad that you're recognizing that. Some some things you don't want exposed. But, yeah, um, <laughs> there there is a thought process that goes, goes on behind some of this stuff. And it's not just – I'm not doing it the way the Robotech Kickstarter went with oh, I made a million dollars and I need to continue to make more, so let me keep making stuff that I can never, ever produce for the backers. The promises of some of that stuff, people should start getting smart about Kickstarter and realize that some of these promises can never happen. And if I ever got to a million dollars with a Kickstarter, I don't know why I would need to continue to throw more crap at the wall. Uh, By the time I've gotten to a million dollars, I've probably offered you so much free stuff for your backing, I don't need to continue to gouge people for more money. I'd be happy with a million-dollar Kickstarter. So you've got a company like, say, Cool Minis or Not, who continue to use the Kickstarter model, even though they're a successful company. Um, they'll make a million and a half anytime they launch a board game with new minis because their minis are so good. But they have a business model and a lot of employees who have to get paid all the time. So they know that if they use the Kickstarter model, there's no risk, right? They're going to make that million and a half. They're going to be able to pay off their payroll for the quarter. They're going to be able to pay for the shipping, right? And so they're just churning out product through that model because it is successful for them, and they have a history of producing what they say they're going to it, it works, and it's a different way of receiving income, too. So you actually report the income differently when you're doing your taxes, depending on the size of your company. So there's something no smart. Idea. Yeah, there's something smart for me as a – I'm not really a business owner. I'm a studio owner, I guess. As a game designer, there's something smart for me to continue to use it, even if I ever did get successful, because I'm a one-man show. It, it takes a lot of the risk off my shoulders. There, I, I have the money to pay for anything that I have to print right now, right? And so at no point is my is is my Kickstarter business ever going to impact me to the point that I have to file bankruptcy or I have to sell my house to avoid people coming after me, right? That's not something I ever have to worry about. If I all of a sudden can't do this anymore, I can just close up my doors and walk away. And so there's something to be said for right. Kickstarter, that Kickstarter model where I'm just printing what I need to print to get my backers what they need, and I'm not, I'm not using it to – I don't have 50 copies of Black Monk sitting in my house, and I never will. It doesn't matter how successful I get. I'm never going to do my business that way. Cool Minis or not uses it very different than I use it. But for me, it's a no-risk thing, and it's a way to every three months or four months or however often I'm doing a Kickstarter, it's a way for me to generate some income. With Cool Minis or not, I think they have to do it now because they have so many people they're employing, and they're putting out so much product every day. And that's sort of where they've swapped their business model from retail to Kickstarter. Even if their stuff winds up in retail, that's not how they're keeping going. Um, which re- it makes me think, like, uh, when I worked at a mall, I worked at a store where every Christmas we made enough money to stay open till the next Christmas. Yep. So, like, j- January to November, they were maybe breaking even. Right. A lot of times losing money if you just took January to November. But they did so much business in December that it made the whole year profitable. Uh, I used to manage a gamekeeper in a mall, and the middle of uh, the last six weeks of the year were half the business for the year. So 
keeping the door open the rest of the year was just there to remind people that GameKeeper was a thing. Um, they didn't they right. didn't need to do anything other than pay the rent during those months because half their income was coming in six weeks. So yeah, I understand completely what you're saying. There. And so it seems like for some of the large companies, Kickstarters become their Christmas. Only it's every what three or four months instead of once a year. Yeah, if but your cool then, minis are not right now, you're you're doing it just about every six to eight weeks. You're launching a Kickstarter. You know, I haven't been keeping track of them that much. That's a lot. Well, I'm on their mailing list because I backed a couple of them for the miniatures. By the way, I want to point this out. I think that they have a smart business model, but I don't own any of their games. As soon as I get them, I sell them now because they're worth so much money the day of uh, you receive them. Just backing them for the sole purposes of reselling them is in and of itself a business model. Yeah, I'm seeing more and more of that where the day after it's showing up at people's houses, it's a 300% markup. Yeah. And somebody's yeah. buying it. And somebody's buying it. So Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah I just sold uh, the Arcadia one, whatever it was called. Massive Darkness, that's the wow. one I sold. Yeah. It's an interesting economic system that is just, it's really hard for me to get my head around sometimes. It's the same economic system as uh, people selling magic singles, right? Um, True. Where you know that there are people out there that want a specific card, and they're willing to pay more than what the deck costs or the booster pack costs to get that specific card. So opening a lot of decks is worth it to you if that's your model or buying them from a wholesaler or whatever. And I think with full majors or not, you have a lot of people who don't want to take the Kickstarter risk or they don't like Kickstarter, but they want that product once they know that it's printed. And they're willing to pay yeah. up the wazoo for that. Um, so long as people don't break that, because that business model will eventually break, the, the third-party business model, or yeah. to the point where you're not making as big of a profit anymore because everybody figures it out. Yeah. No, my concern, and actually, because I've seen this in uh, musical instruments that have been in bands over the years, and it's 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 leveled out and it's going back down again, but there was a thing where used musical equipment was almost as expensive as new musical equipment. Um, I got vintage stuff, nothing that was special or, you know, uh, limited release, just that people were not going to let their stuff go for less than 80% of original cost. Right. Um, which forces a lot of garage bands out of the, out of the system. But it's leveled out and it's going back down again, and so I'm curious if that will happen too, if it – it will get to a point where everybody's like, whoa, this is too much, and then it levels out again. I think that's the nature of economics. So I, it will eventually level out where people are only making, say, 150% instead of 300% on what they're investing. Right. I mean, and yeah. for some people, that'll still be worth it, right? They'll still buy six copies of Black, uh, not uh, Black Plague, whatever, the, the Zombicide. They'll buy six copies of Zombicide and still turn around and sell yeah. them on eBay because it's still a profit to them. And they're doing that as a volume business with all other kinds of Kickstarters and all other kinds of third-party markups. No, and I think we've talked about this kind of thing before, and it's just it's, it's a recurring weirdness for me, for sure. I do want to actually, before I forget about it, I wanted to ask you about Big Kid Games, um, because I have a copy of Gondola uh, for right. my Kickstarter. I was curious if uh, you are doing anything else for Big Kid Games or what going on there? Um, well, uh, Jason had to go and get a full-time job oh, no. to pay his bills. What's that? I said, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, well, it's hard to make your first game successful enough that you can do this full-time. So, um, And I think because he only has the one game, it's hard to get into distributorship and everything else, even though it's a pretty solid game. It's probably my yeah. 
easiest and most mass produce, uh, mass market kind of game. But I mean, he's still having a trouble because he's just a little guy and he just doesn't have a history yet in the, in the marketplace. So it's going to take him a while to build up a rapport so that he can get into stores. But once he gets there, the kind of games that he's doing, they're all in that wheelhouse of, you know, Carcassonne and Settles of Catan. He's doing those style of mass appeal board games. Yeah, and we played it um, with my family, my kids, and my wife and I. And yeah, because you have the tiling aspect, you have these really cool gondolas, these little wooden gondolas um, that are fun to lay down. And it has some of those aspects as far as appearance and play stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, I'll, I'll and tell so you a I secret. Did, I, I designed it in five minutes. Really? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it took a while to develop all the different tiles, but the core mechanic I made in five minutes, and I never changed it. It never changed. Uh, so it worked from the get-go. Where you had the flags as you go past certain areas. Um, yep. And But, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. It is your most your game most ready for mass market appeal. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Is that a relationship? You and Big Kid Games, is that a relationship that will continue as he's trying to get things figured out then? Well, I've got two more games that I'm trying to pitch to him once, you know, once he's in a place that he can look at more stuff and buy more games. That You know, I, I think that's up to Jason at this point, but I get along with him. I think he's a really great guy. I, You know me, I don't get along with everybody in the hobby, so when I can find somebody that's not a pain <laughs> in the ass, I, I want to continue to work with them. Right, right. Uh, and for uh, people listening, I'll put links up to the game I'm talking about if you're unfamiliar with it. Um, and then also links to all of your other games and a link to the Kickstarter once that's live. Um, yeah. And then um, I'm trying to think. I mean, that was most of what Black Monk launching Wednesday. You're going to have four parts to it, but maybe more. Yeah. Depending on maybe, how it does. Maybe, yeah. maybe one more. And then there's the Western game that you've been sort of looking at. Um, and then I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about pop culture, because last time we got on this really good jag about Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2. Uh, <laughs> I, haven't seen, I haven't seen the newest Blade Runner yet, but you had posted how impressed you were with it. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I really without, was. Without giving spoilers, if you could speak to that a little bit. Um, so the original was a cult classic, right? It didn't do well when it first came out, but nerds and geeks loved it. And it eventually grew into its own thing with numerous cuts and whatnot. And those sort of slow simmering movies don't get made anymore. And the new one is exactly like that, but with a huge budget. It is overly, is overly thought out. There's gorgeous shots in it. It does not disrespect the original. It, it adds to the, to the mythos. It, it is impressive that this thing got made at all. Because smart movies like this don't get made anymore, unless you see something overseas. Nice. No, and I do want to see it. I was really excited. Actually, here, here was my my roller coaster of emotions. They're going to make another Blade Runner movie. No, it's going to have <laughs> right. people involved. Okay, if that guy's going to direct it and that guy's going to be in it, it's probably going to be okay. Um, and then seeing the trailers, they're like, yes, this looks good. So, yeah. No, and it is. It. it the the cinematography is some of the best you've ever seen if you're into that sort of thing. If you like um, big sweeping vistas or you just like looking at how scenes are shot, I'm a huge nerd for that stuff. So I like watching where people are standing in a shot and why they're standing there. Um, and there's a bunch of stuff they do that you've never seen before. Uh, and I especially like how many subject there. 
I don't know if you're familiar with this term. There's objective and subjective storylines in movies, and the objective storyline is obviously him trying to figure out what's going on. The subjective storylines are his relationships with other people and his inability to find out uh, if he's happy or not, so to speak. I can't. I'm not trying to give anything away here. And those subjective storylines are numerous and complicated and wonderful, and I cannot really say enough about this movie. No, I will have to go see it soon. Um, and I have I have an admission to make. I actually like of Blade Runner, the original. I actually like the version with the voiceover. I know people yeah. hate it. <laughs> I love it. Um, I for me, I have seen. It, go ahead. Oh, oh yeah, I was gonna say for me, it was like a lot of the noir films that it was trying to mimic, having that voiceover. I remember watching black and white movies with the really beat up PI. Right, his life is going right. horribly, and everybody's using him. And there's a voiceover. It's like you know, right. that was what that was, and so I love it. Yeah, well, the, but, yeah. the original has a lot more noir elements to it than this one does, but this one still honors the genre. I think this one is much more philosophical. And what I love about it is it doesn't answer all of your questions about the first one. You're still left with with concerns at the end. So that, that to me, is what makes the original Blade Runner so good, is that there's so many questions when you're done. And that's the hallmark of yeah. a good movie. Yeah, good storytelling, you should have questions when you're done. You shouldn't go, yeah. well, that was wrapped up nicely. I feel really content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, for people that work hard all the time and just want to escape to a movie and then go home and take care of their family, wrapping up everything with a nice bow at the end is satisfying, and it makes them feel good, and they go back to their lives. So I can see why those kind of movies get made. But there are people who treat, who truly treat geeky and nerdy films as something to explore. And too often they get treated like mass market crap that, that doesn't really, doesn't have any depth to it the way Blade Runner 1 and 2 do. Yeah, well, um, example, we just watched Baby Driver last night, finally. And Edgar Wright is one of my favorite filmmakers because he had a movie that could have just been, you know, even faster and furiouser and more explosions or whatever. Like that, he could have done that kind of thing, but he takes so much time to create a world and tell a story and the cinematography and the way the songs sync up with all of the uh, visuals as mm-hmm. uh, Davies, like just walking to get coffee and back. It's an experience. It's not, he's really thoughtful about his choices and what he's trying I, to do. I, Although, oh, go ahead. I'll be perfectly honest. I hated the movie but not mm-hmm. for any of those reasons. I just hated the main character, and it, I hated most of the elements of the story. I loved how that scene was shot. I'll absolutely agree with you. That going to get coffee thing was, was – yeah. I don't even know how many takes that took. That was genius. Um, and I don't but, know if it was but, a real one or a fake one um but he made it look like it was all one camera shot. Yeah, yeah. You know, he absolutely did. And I loved all the secondary characters surrounding the story – I thought they were they were really stylistic and juicy. The main character is just so banal that it, and I have to follow him for seventy five percent of the film. I just couldn't take it. I, I hated it. Yeah. Well, and uh, he he makes some. I, I can say this without spoiling anything for people who haven't said it. If he had simply driven slower on occasion, it would have gone differently. Like there were times where he didn't have to drive that fast, and they might have been fine. <laughs> Um, the other thing is, I want to know, 
Deborah's story. Deborah's the love interest for the people who haven't seen it. I want to know her story that it takes a week for her to be ready to do what she's ready to do by the end of the movie. Again, I don't want to give anything away, but you've seen it. I want to know yeah. her story and why she's committed to doing the things she's committed to do by the end of the movie. She had to have had just a rough life to go, yeah, this is okay. Uh, yeah. yeah I, we get a little taste of her, and probably the fact that she's reticent to talk about the past probably gives us a clue about you know right. how she probably has tried to restart several times, right? Yeah. And I get the impression that, that uh, anything that she can trust, she grabs a hold of really quickly. Um, but now we're over analyzing the character but yeah you're right there's probably if they really wanted to make it kind of artsy they could have done a five minute flashback for her in the middle of the movie and that would have that would have made it really art house and i don't i think that's maybe that's one of the failures in the film is they don't fully embrace the art house feel they still make it look slick and they have slick music by the way i could not stand the music because that's just not my oh, style no. of music. No, that's not my style okay. of music, so none of those songs impressed me. And I know that they're for other people, and the movie was made for completely generational film watchers. Right. I, I think if you want to go the complete art house route, that movie needs to look a lot, little less slick. Yeah, well, and it suffers from, because uh, Baz Luhrmann had this issue with his Romeo and Juliet, is the first ten minutes of the movie, the pace is incredible and unrelenting. And then when it slows down, it slows down. And it's just yeah. like, wait a minute, I thought I was watching a different movie. Why are they just sitting there talking to each other? Oh, I'm so bored. Oh, good, they're moving again. Uh, you can tell when directors are getting tired. Um, you can tell yeah. when they're not loving the project anymore. Keeping that enthusiasm up is difficult, right? I'll use Lord of the Rings as an example. I only like the first one. Two and three suck. And you can see... I don't, I don't like any of them. <laughs> you can see Peter Jackson getting tired. You can can see him running out of ideas. You can you can see the momentum killing them because they're do, been doing this for a year. It's very difficult, I think, for directors. I'll use even the girl with the dragon tattoo, the remake in America with uh, David Fincher. Fincher is one of my favorite directors yeah. of all time, but that movie sucks. His remake is, you can see he's bored. You can see he's not enjoying this project, and he clearly has to do it to get something else made. And right. the original in Swedish is so effing good, it makes me wonder yeah. why they bothered to ruin it with the American version. Because they had no, nobody on the screen is having fun. Nobody. Yeah, I haven't seen the American remake. I've seen the originals, and I love them. And then they also did a TV version with the original cast from the, the, the Swedish movie. All the people who made the Swedish movies made a television version. Really? Yeah. Um, that's still good, but it's way less graphic, shall we oh, say. Okay. I kind of get that, but I don't know. I, no, yeah, I, don't know why you would re I don't know why you would need to remake it. Yeah. No, the, the three movies are great. They're good the way they are. Well, I think we, <laughs> we got off track of uh, Blade Runner. <laughs> we and, did. Uh, we did. <laughs> But let's let's bring it back, and I think we should go ahead and wrap this up. Black Monk Kickstarter launches Wednesday, October 18th. I'll get a link in there for people. Uh, everyone should check out your other games. Oh, this is the question I have. If someone does not have your previous Praxis games, can they get just this Black Monk one and be happy? Yeah, absolutely. You can pick up any of them, and you'll be happy. All the rules are in there, everything. You don't need to know the original world, because everything gets re-explained in every book, so they stand alone. Um, but each one comes with its own set of unique characters for that specific environment. So one is a village where everybody fears the Black Monk. One is a village where everybody gets along with the Black Monk. One is a village where nobody's heard of the Black Monk. Another one is a monastery where they don't go outside for fear that the Black Monk is out there. 
And the last one is people getting ready for the Black Monks to return, and they're going to try to kill him. So those are all different takes on the Black Monk as a character in this world of time standing still. All right, excellent. Well, Jim, thank you again so much. Uh, for joining us here. It's always a good time when we talk, and we can also wind up not talking only about games, because uh, I love your perspective on pretty much everything. So, Aww. thank you. Um, and then, yeah, any any last thoughts before we go? No, I think I said it all. I could reiterate my <laughs> hatred for Shadowrun. Will that, will that be a nice bow on this present? Yeah, drive that home. No Shadowrun. Media. Where we all bring something to the table. Pull up a chair at punchboardmedia.com. <laughs>